This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have Dinosaur of the Day, Acanthophilus, and we have a bunch of dinosaur news. But first, we'd like to thank our Stegosaurus patrons, Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, and Lindsay Burns. And Lindsay just joined, so thanks, Lindsay. Yeah, and thanks everyone. We really appreciate it. It really helps us keep this podcast going. So if you want to join this awesome group of people, then check out our page at patreon.com slash I know dino. Yep, we can't do it without everybody's support. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody's, yeah. Well, everybody who's helping. (laughs) Yes. And now on to the news. In a rare turn of events, I'm going first. I don't like it. He said that last time. This has only happened (laughs) twice, I think. Anyway. Yeah. (laughs) There's been a new dinosaur discovery on the Isle of Wight, and it's a footprint that's been preserved on another dinosaur bone, which is pretty cool. So Oliver Matson, paleontologist and director of the Dinosaur Expedition Center near Brystone, found the fossil in 2015, and it's now been cleaned and put on display at the center. And the dinosaur bone is a vertebra that belongs to a brachiosaur, but the footprint on top of it belongs to a three-toed theropod. So what probably happened is the vertebra was in a shallow layer of mud, and then the theropod walked on top of it and crushed the surface of the bone into the shape of its foot. Huh. I've never heard of that before. That's pretty weird. That's what they said in the article. They quoted as, they don't think this has ever been found before. It's weird that the vertebra was soft enough that it could be imprinted like that. Maybe the theropod really put its weight into it. I guess so. (laughs) And speaking of dinosaur footprints, there are a few new tracks that were found in Oleron. How do you say that? That's French. I think you've got it. Oh. Olerone. Olerone. Did I get that time? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm not an expert. But you took French. <laughs> it's an island off of the Atlantic coast of France, and it's about half the size of the Isle of Wight, also known as Dinosaur Island, where that new discovery was. Mm-hmm. And the island is also about the same size as Aruba. So maybe you have some context for how big it is. The trackway is at the north end of the island, and it's in the Purbeck Beds, which are a late Jurassic or early Cretaceous formation, and they found four tridactyl theropod-type prints, which are believed to be from a medium-sized theropod, possibly a megalosauroid or an allosauroid, not really sure. And then they, in another location, found five medium sauropod and or large thyreophoran which is ankylosaur or stegosaur tracks. And they couldn't really tell exactly what it was because they're not in the best shape. And it didn't 
really preserve the toe prints, basically. So it's kind Aww. of just like a big pothole kind of thing. And it's the right size for a dinosaur print, but it's a little bit hard to tell which dinosaur it might be. And they can't really narrow it down to a sauropod or an ankylosaur or a stegosaur because they found teeth from both nearby. So that just kind of makes it, you know, even less clear. And then they also found a final site that had three potential sauropod tracks. One of them is mostly gone. It basically fell off the edge of a slab. <laughs> yeah, it's like if you imagine there's a slab that has three footprints in it, and then like the slab has eroded on the edge, there's only like 10 or 20% of the first one left. And then the second one, maybe there's 60 or 70% of it. And then the first or the last one's still pretty complete. They're all pretty cracked up and indistinct, and they're just kind of like bowls. They almost remind me of those archaeological sites where they think that they were like mortars and pestles, where they carved out a little bit of a rock and then ground stuff up in it. Carved out of dinosaur footprints. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they can't really distinct it, specifically say that they are dinosaur footprints because they don't really have any identifying features. They're just roughly the right size and from this Mesozoic formation. So mm. it seems likely, but there isn't really any identifiable traits there. One thing that was kind of cool is they scanned all the tracks with a structured light 3D scanner, which is the same kind of technology that the Microsoft Connect uses. It's kind of neat. Cool. It's kind of an alternative to doing photogrammetry. It's a little bit more expensive to buy the device, but it's a lot easier to do on the field because you just have like one little handheld thing that you point at it a little bit and you're done. Nice. Next, we have more news about track sites. So EarthTouch News Network posted a story about Massachusetts, which apparently has one of the best fossil track sites. It's now known as the Gary Gowan Dinosaur Track Site, and it's named after Gary, who found dinosaur footprints in his backyard when digging a hole for a fish pond back in 1996. Most of the footprints are theropod footprints from the early Jurassic, and the largest type is from Eubrontes. It's 16 inches or 40 centimeters long. There's also small dinosaur tracks of Anamopus which is less than one inch or three centimeters long. And those tracks show that they walk together, so they may have been in groups. The track site used to be a playa lake, a shallow, dry climate body of water that fills in and dries out depending on the season. There aren't that many herbivorous dinosaur footprints, so it's unclear what the theropods ate. But there's also prints of fish trails, arthropods, and worm and insect burrows. So seems like a pretty cool track site. Yeah, good thing you didn't turn it into a fish pond before noticing. Yeah, yeah. Good eye, Gary. <laughs> Next up is an article about T-Rex that was published in Nature's Scientific Reports by Paul Gignac and Gregory Erickson. And the title of it is The Biomechanics Behind Extreme Osteophagy in Tyrannosaurus Rex. And if you're not familiar with the word osteophagy, it just means eating bones. Oh, <laughs> yeah. what a paper. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So... Basically, they start out by saying that most carnivorous mammals regularly break bones open with their teeth and get at the marrow that's, you know, inside the bones, which is actually pretty nutritious. It's good to be able to get to it. But that's kind of unusual in the carnivore category. So most carnivorous animals can't break open bones. <laughs> and the way you get the ability to break open bones is you need a really high bite force, but you also need the right tooth pattern and basically tooth structure in order to create enough shear stresses on the bone to break it. 
because bone is really hard to break, you know, and kind of by design. Mm -hmm. But it can break relatively easy, meaning easier than other methods of breaking it by shear stresses, which are like scissors. So if you imagine kind of like when you're breaking a stick, if you like ah. bend it across your knee, that kind of stress. Except the stick is your leg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in that analogy, like one of the teeth is your leg and your hands are your teeth. And uh. Anyway, so most modern reptiles don't have the ability to break open bones and get at marrow. That's nice. So they have to swallow the bones whole and then they have their acidic stomach acid just kind of dissolve the whole thing or they have to spit it back out. Oh, I wonder what, what prey feels more. <laughs> I think the prey is long dead by the time this issue is coming about, okay. generally speaking. Mm. But <laughs> yeah, so they sometimes spit them back out or sometimes they just, you know, digest them and there's just little pieces of bone that make it all the way through or whatever. But in any event, crocodiles occasionally can break bones, but they don't really do it intentionally. They just kind of swallow things whole. And then every once in a while, since their bite force is so strong, they kind of incidentally break some bones. <laughs> and then some vultures also break bones. But what they do is they drop them from a really high height and then that cracks them open and then they it's eat like out of the marrow. It's like what crows do to crack open nuts. <laughs> yep, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> so yeah, birds are pretty clever. But most animals don't have this ability. So then the question is, how about T-Rex? Previous bite force estimates range from a conservative 13,400 newtons, or about 3,000 pounds, which is enough to bite through a cow pelvis. Ooh. And they, you know, it could definitely do that because there are indications that they've bitten through, say, like a triceratops frill, which is a pretty thick piece of bone, not too dissimilar. Sure. Plus, that's what they ate in Jurassic Park. So. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was actually the raptors that ate that. I think the T-Rex ate a goat. Oh, uh, okay. But yeah, I get your point. <laughs> <laughs> and then on the upper end, there have been estimates as high as 301,000 newtons or 67,667 pounds, which is, you know, what is that? 20 times as much, 22 <laughs> times as much. <laughs> And they got to that estimate from scaling up an American alligator to T-Rex size and then doubling that number because it had some extra muscles. Because if you think about a crocodile head, it doesn't have that same robustness that a T-Rex head has with possibly more muscle attachment points. So then the question is, why don't you look at the actual biomechanics of a T-Rex head rather than strange things like biting through a cow pelvis or how would a giant alligator That's be? That's fun. <laughs> I guess. So previously, researchers have estimated, based on biomechanics stresses, that T-Rex could have bitten between 35,000 and 57,000 newtons, or 7,800 to 12,800 pounds. And that seems a little bit more reasonable. But there were a couple issues that Gignac and Erickson had with this paper, and they wanted to do kind of an updated take on it. So they started by gathering data from huge living crocodiles. And in an interview with NPR, they talked about how they had to like lasso this 14 or 17 foot long alligator oh and then like put a scale in its mouth so that they could measure its bite force. I'm sure that like alligator that. loved it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that makes sense because crocodiles and alligators are dinosaurs' closest relatives that have teeth. Well, it, it makes sense that, yeah, that's what you want to measure. I don't know if it makes sense that you'd want to lasso an alligator and sure. stick a scale in its, it's mouth. It's for science. 
<laughs> in the name of science, everything is important. <laughs> so they, like I said, they made a couple different assumptions in the previous biomechanical model. They digitally modeled the jaw muscles, but they changed them a little bit. And then they looked at the shear forces on the teeth and the ability to break bones, because that's really the name of the game in this paper. Ultimately, they looked at lots of different T-Rex skulls because they're all different sizes and have different teeth geometries, and that affects how they could break bones. But the largest bite force came out of Sue the T-Rex, probably not too surprising since it's so big. And they got a bite force range of 17,700 to 34,500 newtons, which works out to 4,050 to 7,761 pounds. Seems like quite a range. It is, but it, it depends on the location in the jaw. So if you bite near your molars versus if you bite near the front of your mouth, you can get a lot more pressure near the back of your mouth where you don't have the torque working against you and you're closer to the muscle attachments. So that's really what the factors were here. And then Erickson on NPR said, quote, that's like setting three small cars on top of the jaws of a T-Rex. That's basically what was pushing down, end quote. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I never really thought about it like that, but that's a really good way to think about it with those big, sharp teeth, and then you rest that skull on top of yourself and then put a couple cars on top of it. That's a pretty awful situation to be in. <laughs> I'm glad they're extinct. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so in case you're wondering, you need about 65 megapascals or 9,400 PSI to break bone with one bite. Or you can repeat many times, like some smaller mammals will just kind of chew repetitively and you can break it down slowly. Sue could reach 2,974 megapascals or 431,342 PSI on its best teeth in terms of creating this pressure. And most of the teeth in its mouth easily exceeded the 65 megapascals across most of the length of the tooth. It's not even just like the tip of the tooth had enough force. It was almost like half of the tooth, just like going halfway down, could just like obliterate bone. Hmm. So you can see how T-Rex became known for this bone crushing ability. <laughs> and another cool thing is that if you look at Sue or most T-Rex, you'll see that the teeth aren't really uniform along the jaw. And what that ends up doing is it causes these sort of pressure points, like I was talking about holding a stick and pressing with your knee. You can actually get that both across the jaw. So then the, the lower jaw, which fits inside the upper jaw, it's like two points of contact on the bottom of the bone and then two points on the top of the bone, but outside. Hmm. So like the upper jaw is the top contact point. So it works like those pairs of teeth are bending a bone in half so you can break, you know, the way that you'd see like a dog chew on a bone most likely. <laughs> but their teeth are also so strong and they have the right pattern that just along, say, the right side of its mouth, it could break a bone if it was sticking in that direction or say, you know, it's got the frill of a triceratops just on the right side of its mouth it could crunch right through it. The ultimate predator. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. There are a couple other quotes that I want to share from the article because I think they're really good. One of them is that, there was so much pressure caused by these jaws, more than we've ever seen in any living animal, that it may have caused, quote, catastrophic explosion of some bones, end quote, which just sounds crazy. That <laughs> yep. <laughs> so much force to just obliterate bones. And they say, quote, 
the collective results of this taxon's biomechanical and physiological feeding capacities allowed these large-bodied theropods to uniquely exploit large bones from dinosaur carcasses known to include giant horned dinosaurs like Triceratops, duck-billed hadrosaurids like Edmontosaurus, and even other T-Rex hmm. that could not be consumed otherwise by contemporary carnivores. Tyrannosaurus rex, therefore, was able to derive sustenance from bones of prey and scavenged carcasses, much like extant gray wolves and spotted hyenas, end quote. Huh. I think that's a really well-written uh, way to describe how T-Rex may have been a facultative scavenger, basically meaning that it was a hunter, but then if it ever came across, say, some old bones that nothing else was able to break into pieces and get at the marrow, it could just go for it because why not? <laughs> and it probably had that opportunity a fair amount of the time since nothing else was really going for it. So with this idea of this catastrophic explosion of some bones, do you think it was ever really digging into some carcass, there was an explosion of bones, and then like a bone shard hits its eye or something like that? Probably not, but maybe. That would hurt. Yeah, I think it'd be more likely to like cut up its gums if it mm. like kind of exploded in the wrong moment. But, I mean, it would probably just eat all those shards anyway, because in the coprolites of T-Rex, we find all these little tiny pieces of bone all the time. So it seems like they just broke up the bones into little tiny pieces and then ate them. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it hurt on its way out? It probably hurt a lot of the way. <laughs> I mean, that's not, that's they not, weren't meant to be digested. Yeah, not really. But if you break them up small enough, it might be okay. All right. Come back to it a little bit more in the fun fact. <laughs> Good teaser. Yeah. Next up, there's a paper published in Paleontology by David Hone and Jordan Mallon about how sexual dimorphism in non-avian dinosaurs is pretty much impossible to distinguish. And we've heard that question a few times in the past of whether or not we can tell the difference between a male and a female dinosaur. And the short answer is, unless there's a medullary bone, you probably can't tell a difference. You're just going to bring up the medullary bone? Yeah. <laughs> they actually didn't mention medullary bone anywhere in the paper or in Hone's blog post about this paper, which I thought was interesting. Hmm. But, I mean, those are pretty uncommon. There's only one or two cases, and they're a little bit controversial anyway, whether it is, in fact, medullary bone. So... The real issue with this is that dinosaurs had a relatively slow growth rate. It's actually a pretty good comparison with modern alligators, which also grow pretty slowly. So alligators mature at about 10, but they still keep growing until they're about 20 or 30 years old. So it's kind of this curve, if you imagine, you know, it grows quickly for the first 10 years and then it slows down, but it still keeps going for quite a while. And say with T-Rex, we've never even really, I don't think we've ever found a T-Rex that's older than about 30. So they're all kind of in this range of still growing a little bit. On the other hand, rheas, which are kind of like a smaller relative of ostriches, grow much more quickly. And they mature by the age of two, and then they're pretty much done growing. There's nothing really after that, even though they live a pretty long time. So... The issue is if you randomly sample these slower growing animal taxa before maturity, it isn't really helpful at all because you're just getting different ages of dinosaurs that are growing at different rates just because of individual variation. And we find a lot more dinosaurs that are on the younger end of the spectrum than are completely fully grown. So that makes it difficult. 
And then what the authors did was they tried to look at just how many rias or alligators you would have to randomly sample in order to be confident about the fact that one group of them is male alligators and one group is female alligators. Wait, how many rias does it take? (laughs) (laughs) It takes a lot. So with rias, it takes about 15 of each gender in order to tell the difference between a male and a female growth curve. So 30 total. And you'd have to know that you had at least 15 of each too. With alligators, you need about 35 of each gender for the same result, so at least 70 total, assuming you were getting an even distribution. And then, like I said, this is made worse by the fact that we tend to get younger specimens, which are less helpful than the older specimens, so it might even take hundreds of individuals before you could parse out the difference. That's where bone beds come in handy. Yeah, a little bit, but you never really get hundreds of individuals. Yeah, I guess you often get pieces too. Yeah, that's the other thing. And then also knowing what age exactly they were can be difficult. Knowing what their exact size would have been can be difficult. And even being able to tell if the bones themselves haven't distorted or giving you some other issues, it basically means that it's super, super hard to tell how quickly the dinosaurs were growing. And then it's even more difficult to tell whether or not there was a difference between the males and females. And Sabrina's going to like this one. There's a new article published in the Journal of the Geological Society of India, which looks at the gut contents of some sauropods. Yes, best combination. (laughs) What more could you want? Nothing. Nothing more. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So they found a bunch of coprolites, which are fossilized poop, in this case, sauropod coprolites, and it was from central India. And then they looked at the contents. So I guess it's not really gut contents, it's poop contents, but you know. Similar. Tomato, tomato. They, <laughs> they found pollen, spores, algae, fungus, grasses, sponge spicules, diatoms, and amoeba. No tomatoes or tomatoes. Yeah, probably not. (laughs) In in the fossilized coprolites. And based on that, the authors think that these sauropods ate the soft parts of gymnosperms, which include conifers, cycads, and ginkgos, as well as the soft parts of angiosperms, which are things like flowers and fruits. So The best parts, then. Yeah, pretty much. They think that the amoeba, algae, sponge and diatom remains came from them just drinking water and incidentally getting some of that into their digestive system. Well, they have no way to filter their water. (laughs) That's true. They didn't have Britas. (laughs) (laughs) So it was pretty interesting. And I immediately thought of Sabrina's earlier comment a couple episodes ago when we were talking about how Diplodocus might have scraped algae off of rocks and they found some algae in the... Oh, yeah. (laughs) In the copper light. Interesting. But, you know, they're saying that it probably came from drinking water. And then also you could even say maybe some of these things were just like in the poop, you know, afterwards. It's always really hard to tell Mm -hmm. when the stuff shows up. And that's always a big argument with soft tissue remains or melanosomes. Maybe we're just looking at some bacteria that got in there later or something. That's a good paper. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So we know a little bit more about what sauropods ate. Tree stars. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. 
As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And next, we have news about a new excavation site. On May 26th, the Chinese Academy of Sciences launched an excavation zone in Yanji City, northeast China's Jilin province. And it's the only excavation site in a modern city area. They're covering an area of 10 square kilometers, and they think that the site is from the late Cretaceous period. And they know that there's about six types of dinosaurs in that area that lived in the late Cretaceous. So that's a large-scale project. I'm sure they'll have some great finds. We've got a few news items having to do with dinosaurs in China. Next, the China Post issued Chinese dinosaurs on May 19th, which is a set of postage stamps of seven dinosaurs who were found in China. So these include Gigantoraptor erlionensis, which lived in the Cretaceous, Cintaosaurus, Yantuanosaurus, Cenosauroteryx, Microraptor, Huayangosaurus, and Mementosaurus. Giganoraptor was found in Ernha, which is in North China's Inner Mongolia Autonomous Region, and where many fossils have been found. And they have that awesome new museum, too. They do. And apparently it's been a big deal for a while for dinosaur fossils. So back in the Qing Dynasty, between 1644 and 1911, Ernha was a post on the Hagan-Kuri routes, which are trade roads between China and Europe, known as the T-Road. And a geologist from Russia found dinosaur fossils in the city back in 1893, and it was the first city in China where dinosaur fossils were found. 
And it's also the first city in Asia where dinosaur egg fossils were found, and it has one of the largest variety of dinosaurs in the area. There's been a lot of expeditions there, and between 1922 to 28, there was an expedition team from the American Museum of Natural History. Seems like they made it everywhere. (laughs) Uh, They went on a whole bunch of trips and found a number of hadrosaur bones and dinosaur egg fossils. And then teams from China and the Soviet Union also went on scientific trips in 1959, and teams from China and Canada went in 1988 and the 1990s. They went on multiple trips. In 2005, Giganoraptor was excavated, and in 2007, it was reported to be the largest known bird-like dinosaur fossil. It's estimated to be 26 feet or 8 meters long and weigh about 3,000 pounds or 1,400 kilograms, which is similar in size to T-Rex. Yeah, I really like those kind of ungainly looking ones. Mm -hmm. I think of Dinochirus was known about when I was a kid. That one would be my favorite dinosaur because of its weirdness. Not Therizinosaurus. No. Dinochirus has that nice hump. (laughs) (laughs) It's got that nice Jar Jar Binks look. It It does. (laughs) Kind of like an anteater or something. (laughs) So... Ehrenhaut also has Ehrenhaut National Geopark, which is thought to have fossils in a 3,000 square meter area. And as Garrett mentioned, it's become this hot tourist spot. There's a dinosaur fossil hall that covers some of the excavation sites. And there's 99 dinosaur sculptures around the city, including two brachiosaurus kissing to form the city gate that's known as Dinosaur Kiss, which I think we've talked about a few times. We have. Take that, Washington. They got like three times as many sculptures. (laughs) (laughs) Next, CNN published a story about a Chinese artist named Zhao Chuang who brings dinosaurs to life. And he started by illustrating an ancient gliding mammal for the cover of Nature in 2006, and that kind of launched his career. Now he works with many paleontologists, including Xu Xing and a lot of museums. And recently he worked with the American Museum of Natural History for their exhibition Dinosaurs Among Us, which focuses on the link between dinosaurs and birds. He says he gets his facts from paleontologists, but often has to use some of his imagination to fill details in, which sounds like it's pretty common if you're a paleo artist. There's toys that have been made based on his models, so that's pretty cool. And some of his creations include Xu Xing's Microraptor, Ankyornis, and Gigantoraptor. Zhao said he secretly drew dinosaurs at his desk at school, though his teacher wasn't too happy about <laughs> it. He came from a poor family, but now he travels across the world and makes art for a living, so dream come true. Nice. Live in the... Chinese dream. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I don't think that's the saying. (laughs) Maybe it is. (laughs) Next, Inverse posted this really interesting story about the violent world of dinosaurs and how the age of dinosaurs is, quote, the age of dead baby dinosaurs. Jeez. Yeah. So Mike Habib, a professor from USC in California, said, quote, The Mesozoic is really full of vulnerable meatballs on legs, running around, trying to hide and eat enough to get to a size where you can't kill them anymore, end quote. (laughs) Which I was actually thinking of this, Garrett, when you were talking about the T-Rex and its bone-crushing abilities. And And how a lot of the finds that we have aren't (laughs) full-grown. Yeah. (laughs) So Mike's currently studying titanosaurs, and he talks about how full-grown titanosaurs don't have to fear anything. And they've survived a lot of attacks when they're growing up, and now they're too big to be attacked. So I guess that makes sense of his explanation. If you're talking about sauropods, that's definitely what they're trying to do. Some of the smaller dinosaurs, like I don't think Microraptor's goal is to get big enough that nothing will mess with it. (laughs) No. (laughs) It'll always be a meatball on legs. (laughs) But a quick one. Yeah. But the interesting thing is... 
the titanosaurs get large and then on the ground, just below them, there's a lot of attacks happening, especially to baby dinosaurs. And the adult dinosaurs probably don't notice any of it. So titanosaurs, they laid these 10-pound eggs and they weren't around to watch them hatch. And there's not much they even could have done if they were around because they were just too massive. So they lay maybe hundreds of eggs each year so that a few might survive and lay their own eggs. And then the rest became meals to other animals. Kind of like modern turtles. I was just thinking that, yeah. (laughs) But because of this, this is probably why we don't see too many baby dinosaur fossils. On the bright side, titanosaurs could grow quickly. I guess that's the opposite of what you were saying, Gary. They're kind of... On the theropod side, yeah. Yeah. Well, and also in terms of dinosaur growth, a Mm -hmm. lot of them were slow growing. Well, I mean, they grew kind of quickly for the first 10 years, but then they just kind of kept growing. Oh, that's true. So, I mean, they kept growing even longer than humans. Yeah. Really. But as an example of how quickly they grew, there's a recent study of Repetosaurus that found that they could grow from 8 to 88 pounds in six weeks. Yeah, that is a lot. Yep. And even things like T-Rex grew pretty rapidly because they got so huge. They had to put on a lot of pounds a week. But, you know, it just took a while to get up to that several ton weight. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Next in Morrison, Colorado, Dinosaur Ridge Visitor Center, a nonprofit, is facing some difficulties. So the visitor center has been growing, which is good. There were 120,000 visitors in 2015 and 170,000 visitors last year. But that's been putting a strain on them because they have a small amount of space. And we've talked about Dinosaur Ridge before when there was a protest. People didn't want the area to be rezoned to allow auto dealerships near the visitor center. But Mm. apparently that wouldn't have been a bad thing for the center necessarily. So three dinos, which owns the land, had offered to swap land parcels and give money for a new visitor center at a different location. But Jefferson County, where... Dinosaur Ridge Visitor Center is denied the rezoning. So Three Dinos is no longer offering to pay for a new visitor center because they said they could have done it because the auto dealerships would have paid a lot of money for the land, but now it doesn't really work out. Womp womp. Yeah. Meanwhile, Dinosaur Ridge Visitor Center has a lease on its building from Jefferson County Open Space, and that lease ends next year. So they'll probably go to a month-to-month lease, but they're looking for something longer term. So Open Space and Friends of Dinosaur Ridge and Three Dinos are all in talks to figure out the next steps, but it's not clear what's going to happen yet. Dinosaur Ridge Visitor Center is also focused right now on covering and protecting their dinosaur track site, and their design will be voted on by Jefferson County in June, and if approved, they'll be working on raising funds for that. That's interesting. I wonder how they felt about all those protesters. They were like, go away. (laughs) Mixed feelings, maybe. They're showing their support, right? Yeah. Yeah, I wonder how those protests started. I mean, it might be that they didn't want to get a new visitor center at the expense of, you know, the natural environment around them, or maybe it's just well-meaning but unintended consequences. Yeah, I don't know. If there's anyone listening from that area, let us know. So next, for anyone who wants to go on a dinosaur dig this summer, the Utah Fieldhouse of Natural History State Park Museum in Vernal, Utah, is sponsoring a fossil field school from June 19th to 23rd. It costs $500 and includes working with staff paleontologists and visiting five types of fossil sites, as well as working on excavating 150-million-year-old dinosaur bones, 50-million-year-old mammal, crocodile, and plant fossils, and identifying ancient insects. You have to be over 16 years old and provide your own lodging, meals, and transportation, but could be a good experience. Yeah, especially if you live nearby. Yeah. 
News OK published an article about dinosaurs in Oklahoma, which is home to one of the largest apatosaurus ever found, and hundreds of dinosaur bones. So it all started back in 1931 when a construction crew found a large rib on the State Highway 64. Paleontologists excavated the site and they found tons of bones and the large apatosaurus by 1942. And you can see the apatosaurus at the Sam Noble Oklahoma Museum of Natural History. There's also the Kenton Museum, which has artifacts and info on the dinosaur dig. And you can see some fossilized dinosaur footprints. And there's also the Cameron Heritage Center Museum in Boise City, which has exhibits and artifacts on dinosaurs and local historic sites. And that's interesting because I don't usually think of Oklahoma for dinosaur bones, but... There's a lot more to it. Yeah, they've got a few. More than I had realized. In another state, Michigan has a park called Dinosaur Gardens, which opened for the season on May 26th. The park is 82 years old and was created by a man named Paul Domke, who made the first display in 1935. The park was originally called Paul Domke's Garden and Prehistoric Zoo, and the biggest dinosaur sculptures were made between 1935 and 1967, and the idea was that Paul wanted to make life-size replicas of each dinosaur. There's more than two dozen sculptures, and it's free to walk around. Uh, back in 2013, Gary and Connie Stephen bought the park, and they've been working on restoring the statues. So in addition to dinosaurs, you can also see prehistoric humans and a Michigan black bear. And there's a gift shop, a frozen yogurt bar, and mini golf. Again, it's, it's free to walk around, but if you want a tour, you'll have to pay between 6 and $10. That's really funny. Mm-hmm. That's such an eclectic arrangement of things. I like that his goal was to make every dinosaur. I wonder if he realized how many dinosaurs there would be by now. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Back in the 30s to 60s. I mean, there were probably a couple hundred back then, maybe 100, 200. Well, that seems a lot more manageable. Yeah, now you've got about a thousand. <laughs> it's a little tougher. Thanks to Danielle and Blaze who shared this one with us via Facebook. From now until December 31st, Stone Mountain Park in Georgia has an attraction open called Dinosaur Explore, and it's a collection of more than 20 life-size dinosaurs that can move and roar, and they include T-Rex and Brachiosaurus, Triceratops, and Allosaurus. The attraction is only open on, on attraction open days, so you'll want to check their calendar for dates. Tickets cost between $15 and $32, depending on the package you choose, and then parking will cost an additional $15. So, Blaze and Danielle, if you go, please let us know what you think of it. Yale will soon have a new lecture hall named after Othniel Charles Marsh. So Edward P. Bass made a $10 million contribution to this new 500-seat lecture hall that will be part of the new Yale Science Building and requested that it be named O.C. Marsh Lecture <laughs> Hall. It'll be the largest lecture hall on campus and have a lobby space and a large pavilion. It's funny that a guy named Edward's doing that. Yeah. Edward oh, yeah. Edward Cope was Cope. the... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's cool that he wanted to name it after somebody else. Usually people drop a couple million dollars on a building and they want their name on it. Yeah. I really like that. Maybe he wants to make paleontology even bigger at Yale. Yeah, he's a big Marsh fan, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Next, there's been another dinosaur-related fire. So CBC reported on a fire in Hamilton, Canada at the Flamborough patio furniture on Highway 6. Luckily, no one was hurt. None of the dinosaurs were actually on fire, but two of their superhero statues of Superman and Captain America were destroyed. It's estimated to be $500,000 to $750,000 in damage, and it's unclear what started the fire. The main workshop, unfortunately, is destroyed, but the company's still open. Flamborough Patio Furniture is 
been around since the 70s, and they're known for making decks, children's playgrounds, and statues. Apparently, especially dinosaur statues. <laughs> Next, thanks to Brendan who shared this video with us via Facebook. There's an artist from England named Barnaby Dixon who makes props and stop-motion shorts. And this 37-second video shows off his Velociraptor finger puppet, which has moving arms, moving head, legs, and tail. And it's very realistic looking. And Barnaby in the video talks about how he tries to make it move playfully like a dog. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like a whole hand puppet more than a finger puppet. Yeah. Like he puts one finger into each limb and then I think maybe one of his fingers is also its head or something like that. Mm -hmm. And he might even use his other hand to do some of the things with it, like kind of a maquette, I think. Oh, yeah. But I don't remember exactly. It's really cool, though. They're really well done, especially the little videos. He describes like the different kind of actions he can do with it and mm -hmm. things like smelling stuff and like. Yeah, he really makes it come to life. Yeah. <laughs> bringing back puppeteering. Mm-hmm. I'm a fan. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Sean who shared this next one with us via Facebook. There's a great group called Plastic Paleontology for people who like to collect prehistoric playthings and show off their dinosaurs, and we'll post a link if you're interested in joining. Next, you may have seen a viral quote going around by Mookie Wilson, a former Met centerfielder who supposedly said, quote, when I'm in a slump, I comfort myself by saying, if I believe in dinosaurs, then somewhere they must be believing in me. And if they believe in me, then I can believe in me. Then I bust out. End quote. <laughs> so this quote is from a Village Voice article called Favorite Dinosaurs of the Mets, which was written in 1986. And in the article, Wally Bachman says that dinosaurs are, quote, strange and wondrous beasts that stalked the world of ancient Rome. Keith Hernandez talks about dinosaur drawings that he did during games, and Dwight Gooden said that he found a fossil outside the dugout. However, know that this article is fake. It turns out the Village Voice never interviewed the 1986 Mets, but it still sounds like a funny article. And obviously people liked uh, Mookie Wilson's quote. Even though it's not a real quote. Yeah. That's funny. But you'd, I mean, who wouldn't want dinosaurs to believe in you? I guess, yeah. <laughs> Technically, they did probably roam ancient Rome because, you know, it's just you got to go more ancient than what most people are thinking. Nah. Like another 60 something million years ancient. I thought you were going to go with the birds. Oh, yeah. That too. <laughs> <laughs> there were dinosaurs there too. Good point. <laughs> Next, San Francisco had its San Francisco Silent Film Festival from June 1st to 4th at the Castro Theater, and one of the screenings on June 4th was The Lost World, a film made in 1925 that used stop-motion dinosaurs made by Willis O'Brien to recreate Arthur Conan Doyle's novel. And O'Brien later made King Kong, so we've talked about him before, and apparently he's originally from Oakland. Nice. Just like the Mai Tai. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And popsicles. Oh, I forgot about popsicles. Yep. <laughs> Next, Luke, who is our listener and also the co-creator of a new site called The Jurassic Files, recently posted this really great list of dinosaur books. So if you're looking for something to read, I recommend checking out his list. Full disclosure, he does feature our top 10 dinosaur books. Well, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> what what so more smug. could you want? <laughs> so smug. Anyway, it's a good mix of fiction and nonfiction books, and of course it includes Michael Crichton's books. And other books include Raptor Red, How to Build a Dinosaur, and My Beloved Brontosaurus, which it's on my list to read. I need to pick that one up. Yeah, that's a good list. Mm -hmm. Especially our books. <laughs> 
And Raptor Red. That was also awesome. And How to Build a Dinosaur. They are all good picks. So. <laughs> I haven't read My Beloved Brontosaurus yet either. Yeah. But we've read pretty much the rest of them. Nice. Speaking of lists, Inverse published a great list of 10 dinosaur documentaries that you can stream online. So the first on the list is BBC's The Day the Dinosaurs Died, which Garrett and I have watched and talked about on the show, and we recommend watching it. Yeah, definitely. And there's also Last Day of the Dinosaurs, which is a Discovery Channel feature about the extinction event. I'm noticing a trend. <laughs> yep. Portrayed in a, in a moving way, though. It's told, I think it's told from the point of view of from dinosaurs, but I don't know. Oh, like the literal day yeah, kind of thing? Yeah, I think so. There's Nature Raising the Dinosaur Giant, which is a PBS film about an unnamed titanosaur. That one's good. Dinosaurs Decoded, a National Geographic documentary about lumping dinosaurs. Mm. It's with Jack Horner. That one's pretty good, too. We watched that a while ago. Planet Dinosaur, which is a six-part BBC series about a bunch of dinosaur species. The Truth About Killer Dinosaurs, another BBC documentary. This one's about which dinosaurs would win in a fight. <laughs> and they put a bunch of them together. There's Rise of Animals, Triumph of the Vertebrates, which talks about the evolution of vertebrates. So dinosaurs are kind of at the tail end of that. Hmm. T-Rex Autopsy, which dissects a T-Rex, and we've seen and talked about this one as well. That one's pretty fun. Yeah. It's a little bit on the goofy side, but it's Well, they good... made it smell and didn't tell the people <laughs> they were going to make it smell. What is with people making nasty smelling dinosaurs? <laughs> For the reaction. I guess so. It was a good example, though. They talk about, you know, they actually pull these organs out of this giant T-Rex puppet. And it's like, yeah, that's stomach. Man, that is a big... Big stomach. And then like they have like the gizzard and stuff too. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty interesting way to represent it. Yeah. There's also Nova, Bigger Than a T-Rex, which is a National Geographic documentary about spinosaurs. I and think I've seen that one. That one's an older one, I think. Yeah. I think we watched that a while back. And last is Dinosaur 13, about Sue the T-Rex and Pete Larson, who we interviewed in our first episode. It's a little bit less about dinosaurs and a little bit more about paleontology, fossil law. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It is. So most of these documentaries, if you want to look for them, they're on Amazon, Netflix, or YouTube. And in a couple weeks, we're going to talk about You Are Umasu. Not a documentary. <laughs> no, it is not. It's a really fun anime about an ankylosaur that gets raised by, what is it, a T-Rex, I guess? I think. Something. It's got little arms. Something I think it's a T-Rex. Yeah. So if you want to follow along with our review... You can find that. I think it might even be on YouTube, too. But if you just Google you are Umasu, which is U-M-A-S-O-U, you'll find it really easily, which is also fun. It's very enjoyable. Yeah. <laughs> and in other upcoming review news, Sabrina and I have finished Dragon Teeth, Michael Crichton's newest book, and we both really liked it. And we're going to review that one a couple weeks after You Are Umasu because we're going to be traveling a little bit over the summer. So we do these review episodes to give something fun to listen to. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Acanthopholis, which was a request from Millie via YouTube. So thanks. The name means spiny scales, and it's an ankylosaur in the family Notosauridae that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now England. John Griffiths, a fossil collector, found the bones in 1865 at the shoreline near Kent, and he sold them to Dr. John Percy, a metallurgist. Percy let Thomas Huxley know about the bones, and then Huxley paid Griffiths to dig up the fossils at the site, and he found more bones and some body armor parts. 
Huxley named Acanthopholus horridus in 1867, and the species name means frightening or rough. Hmm. In 1890, Arthur Smith Woodward renamed the species name to Acanthopholus horrida because pholus is feminine. The type specimen consists of three teeth, a basic cranium, dorsal vertebra, spikes, and scutes. It has a long, confusing history, which shouldn't be surprising <laughs> because it was found in the 1800s. <laughs> yeah. In 1869, Harry Govier Seeley named three new Acanthopholus species, Macrocercus, Platypus, and Stereocercus. Platypus? Yes. <laughs> then he split off material of Acanthopholus stereocercus and named a new Anaplosaurus species based on part of that, Anaplosaurus major. And he described another species, Acanthopholus eucercus, based on six caudal vertebrae. But then in 1902, Franz Nopska reassigned that Acanthopholus major and renamed Anaplosaurus curtinotus to Acanthopholus curtinotus. In 1879, Seeley also named Siganosaurus based on part of material from Acanthopholus macrocircus. It's a mouthful. In 1956, Frederick von Huhn renamed Acanthopholus platypus to Macrosaurus platypus, but not everybody <laughs> agrees with this. They're fine with the platypus part, but not the. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's kind of funny. That's great. Then in 1999, Xavier Pereda Superbiola and Paul Barrett reviewed all Acanthopholus material and found all species were Nomina dubia. The specimens were composites of ankylosaur and ornithopod remains. Oh, no. All that work. Although, in that case, Acanthopholus platypus makes sense. But anyway, <laughs> Acanthopholus platypus, as an example, had sauropod metatarsals. Huh. <laughs> Seeley also had two unpublished names that he used to label museum specimens, Acanthopholus hucei and Acanthopholus keeping eye. Something like he's keeping it. But anyway, these are Nomenanuda, which means naked name. Originally, Huxley had assigned Acanthopholus to Solidosauridae, and then in 1902, Nopska created the family Acanthopholididae and later named the subfamily Acanthopholinae. And it was changed to Acanthopholidae in 1928. Now it's considered to be Nodosauridae in Ankylosauria, if it's considered to be anything at all, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, descriptions of Acanthopholus say that it had thick armor made of oval keel plates that were horizontal on the skin and long spikes on the neck and shoulder along the spine. And it was quadrupedal and herbivorous. Sounds like a notosaur. Yeah. And it was estimated to be between 10 and 18 feet or three and five and a half meters long and weighing 840 pounds or 380 kilograms. Though that's not known for sure since it's based on fragments and it's considered by some to be nomina dubia. Yeah. It seems on the light side, only 840 pounds for a 10 to 18 foot long ankylosaur. No, no, no. Maybe made up of all those other parts of dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> made it lighter. And our fun fact of the day, going back to T-Rex biting on things, is that... Nom, nom, nom. Yeah. The strongest bite force of any living animal that's been measured is 3,690 pounds, or 16,414 newtons, which was measured directly from a bobtailed, 4.5 meter long Australian saltwater crocodile. And 
That compares to that estimated maximum of 7,761 pounds for a T-Rex, so roughly half. On the other hand, humans top out at about 200 pounds. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's not bad. That's on the molars. It's about 60 pounds on our incisors. That makes a T-Rex bite about 40 times as strong as a human. It's not as many times stronger as I thought it would be. If you're wondering, a normal chewing force is about 70 pounds. It's kind of high. I'm kind of surprised it's so much. Yeah. You have strong jaw muscles. Well, depends what you're talking about compared yeah, to a T-Rex. I suppose so. On the pressure side of things, so basically, if you're not familiar, pressure is force per area. So things that have really sharp teeth can get much higher pressure than the overall force because all of that force is put on, you know, like the tip of a tooth. So if you're dividing it by a square inch and, you know, you've only got a thousandth of a square inch, you're basically multiplying your force a thousand times on that pressure point. So the highest bite pressure that's ever been recorded on a living animal is 2,473 megapascals, which is 358,678 PSI, which is just an insane amount of pressure. And that was also from an Australian saltwater crocodile. This one was three meters long. And again, a T-Rex could do about 431,000 PSI. So in this case, it's still higher than the Australian saltwater crocodile, but not by that much. I couldn't find any accurate source for human bite pressure. Apparently, nobody knows the difference between force and pressure because everyone just kept saying 200 PSI. But I mean, that's it's 200 pounds, not 200 PSI. And anyway, the closest I could find was maybe five megapascals. There was one article that kind of talked about it, which is about 700 PSI. But remember, you need 65 megapascals or 9,400 PSI in order to break bone with one bite. So we're not even remotely close to getting to that super carnivore level. (laughs) Well, we're omnivores, so. Yeah. And we have hands and like knives and what do you call those things? Cleavers that go through bone. (laughs) (laughs) And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. And if you want to join our growing community of dinosaur enthusiasts, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I know dino. Thanks again. And until next time. Good day.